Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Kings 1. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings 1, 1 to 53. Sometimes it's uh, wise to just head off rumors right from the start. So I'm going to head off a rumor that uh, if you drive by my house and you see that my house is for sale... We're just moving in town, okay? You didn't get rid of me. You might hope, but we're just downsizing and actually moving literally right next door to our grandbaby. So, oh yeah, our daughter as well, but right next door to our grandbaby. That's the deal. Uh, So that's what we're doing. Uh, Let's ask God uh, to guide our time. Father God, uh, thank you for the opportunity to look at First and Second Kings over a period of time, and we pray that as we do so, we would have a better understanding of this historical narrative, not just so that we would understand history, but that we would be changed by your inspired and errant word as we look at this history. We ask that you would guide us It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Today, you and I are going to begin a study of 1st and 2nd Kings. Originally, 1st and 2nd Kings was one book, but it was divided so that publicly we might be able to navigate it a little bit differently, a little bit easier. It covers about 400 years of history. And there are four major movements in 1st and 2nd Kings. The four major movements are these. It begins around 970 BC, the time period when there is a transfer of power from Israel's greatest king, David, to his son, Solomon. And then Solomon will build the temple. So that's movement number one. Movement number two is the transfer of power from Solomon to his son Rehoboam. You may know that there were three kings that ruled over all 12 tribes. Saul for 40 years, David for 40 years, Solomon for 40 years. And then when Solomon handed over the kingdom to his son Rehoboam, Rehoboam fumbled And within about three days, the ten northern tribes seceded from the union 
and they became known as Israel, and the two southern tribes became known as Judah, and Solomon's son only ruled the bottom portion. That leads to the third movement, and that is the fall of those ten northern tribes. God allowed them to exist until 722 B.C., During that time period, they had 19 kings and one queen, Athaliah. All 20 monarchs were evil. All did evil in the sight of God. And God, who was slow to anger and abounding in love, gave them well over 200 years to turn towards God. And when they did not, finally he allowed the Assyrian Empire to destroy the 10 northern tribes. And if you know anything about history, you know that those 10 northern tribes are lost. Now there must be a remnant because they come back into play during the great tribulation. But essentially we know nothing of where that remnant is. And then the fourth movement is the fall of the two southern tribes called Judah. There's about 26 kings six of which are godly, six more than in the north. Because of that, God gave them an extra 120 years. But eventually, God allowed Babylon to take the leadership of Judah into captivity, where they remained in captivity for 70 years, first in Babylon and then the Medo-Persian Empire. So that's a summary of the 400 years. And as we think of that summary, there are three main applications that come over and over and over again from 1st and 2nd Kings. The first application is this. One needs to glorify and serve God above all else. Although God is slow to anger and God is abounding in love, Eventually, God finds those who do not have a heart for him needing discipline. That happened first to the 10 northern tribes and eventually also to the two southern tribes. Essentially, they faltered in four areas. They faltered in the area of pride. They thought the world revolved around them. They faltered in the area of materialism. They wanted things more than they wanted God. They faltered in the area of abusive power. They mistreated individuals made in the imago gay, in the image of God. And they faltered in the area of intimacy. They turned God's good gift into an illicit gift. And so what did God do? He blessed those who obeyed and he brought discipline to those who did not. That's application number one. The second application is that God will share his glory with no other. He will share his glory with no other. The first two commandments of the Decalogue had to do with idolatry. And that is the overriding problem in these 400 years. And we often think of idolatry as bowing down before graven images. 
That is idolatry, but idolatry is anything, anyone, any possession, any pet sin, any desire that we place above our desire for God. And so again, we see the principle God blesses those who obey him and God brings discipline to those who do not. And the third application is that when God gives us his word, when God speaks, God expects his people to obey. Again, the principle is clear. If you obey, God will bless. If you disobey, God will bring discipline into one's life. And I think we'll see these applications over and over and over again in First and Second Kings. As I thought about First and Second Kings, I thought about November of 2000 in United States history. It was during that time period that we learned a phrase that most of us had never heard before. Hanging chads. Also fat chads. And pregnant chads. I know none of us want to hear about it again, but allow me to recap those 36 days of history. You see, we're a nation that expects that before we go to bed on election night, we will know who our next leader is. But we did not know until December 12th. We did not know for 36 days. You remember how the events went. Early in the evening, the Associated Press realized that the entire election hung on the state of Florida. And by mid-evening, they had called the election for Vice President Gore. But a little while later, they realized that the votes from the panhandle had not yet been counted, a heavily Republican section. And so they then, after those votes, called the election as too close to call. By late evening... Governor Bush was up by 50,000 votes, and then Vice President Gore very graciously conceded the election. By early morning, now we were separated by a mere 1,783 votes, and that triggered an automatic law in Florida for a recount. We had less than 2,000 votes, of six million votes cast. And herein lay the problem. Do you recount the whole state? Do you recount only those areas that are dominated by Republicans? Those areas that are dominated by Democrats? Those areas where they have old voting machines or all voting machines? You remember what a hanging chat is. A ballot has four points to it, and a hanging chad has two or three that are still connected, and one is broken. Did the machine malfunction and mean to punch through all four? Did the machine malfunction and accidentally pump, punch through one or two? And then you had these pregnant or fat chads where all four sections were still intact, 
but there was an indent in the middle suggesting that the hammer had hit it, but maybe not hard enough. Did the machine malfunction and it should have gone all the way through? Did the machine malfunction by hitting it slightly? And again, where do you recount? And so we had lawyers from all ideologies descending, wanting to look at every single ballot. And again, depending on your ideology, you wanted to count the ballots in this district or that district, but not necessarily all districts. And you remember finally, with less than 600 votes separating the two, by a split Supreme Court decision, five to four, the count was validated or verified, and our next president became, Governor Bush became the 43rd president of the United States. Here is my point. Although many did not agree with the results, although there were scathing editorials, although there were lawsuits unsolved, although there were all sorts of demonstrations, to my knowledge, our country was never in danger of a coup. That's very remarkable. And that has not been the case in most of history. And that is not the case as we begin 1 Kings chapter 1. The nation is in great, grave danger of a coup. Let me pick up and read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. Now, King David was old. Now, we may, some of us, disagree when we discover just how young he is. But he's old 3,000 years ago. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. As you and I begin, the year is 970 BC. We have to understand the setting. David is Israel's undisputed greatest king. Under David, the boundaries have been expanded, the boundaries have been secured, the enemies have been put down. Rival nations know not to attack Israel. The Jebusites have donated, probably against their will, Jerusalem to be the capital city. David has been a great king, but David is now 70 years old. Not a particularly old age for us with our health advances, but for their age and their era, that was an exceptionally old period for a person to be. And David is not well. David can't get his circulation going the right way. David is perennially cold. And so we have poor Abishag, who becomes a human hot water bottle. This is horrible. 
understand that we have historical narrative. Historical narrative tells us what took place. But we need epistolary literature to evaluate historical narrative on whether what took place is right or what took place is wrong. Undoubtedly, what took place is wrong. We ought to be horrified that any woman is turned into a human hot water bottle. We ought to be appalled. I am certain that God is. But in the midst of being appalled, let's not miss the point. The point of the text is this. David is no longer vile. David is no longer strong. David is weak. And so 11 times in chapter 1, we read the question, who will be on David's throne? That's the question of the day. Everybody is concerned for the security of the nation. The stability and growth is a real concern. And into this potential leadership vacuum, David's oldest living son, his oldest son is Absalom, he's dead. So we have the second oldest, Adonijah, and he decides that because David is old, because David is feeble, because chronologically he is first in line, he has himself coronated as the king. Let's pick up and read verses 5 to 10. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Let me stop. David may have been a great king, but he was a domestic mess. He was a terrible husband. He was even a worse father. If you want to be a bad father, you follow this advice. He never told his son no. This is like the parent who always sides with her own cherub against the teacher. And the teacher says, your child has been disobedient. The parent says, no, no, you're a lousy teacher. That's what's going on here, except David has done that for year after year. And Adonijah is a spoiled, rotten adult. Why have you done thus and so? David never asked him that. He was also a very handsome man. That's a blessing, but not exactly a qualification for leadership. And he was born next after Absalom, which we already know is dead. He conferred with Joab, that's the great general, by any stretch of the imagination, a murderer and an ethical man. So he's conferring with the underside. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. Oh, good. He's at least getting some biblical counsel, except this is the wrong priest. This is, again, the underside. This is not a godly man. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, a godly one, and Benaiah, he's head of the 30-man secret service for David, but Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, the most godly prophet alive at that time, and Shammai and Re and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. So in other words, he's got the underbelly, but he doesn't have the reputable leaders on his side. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, 
fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which has been side and rogel. And he invited all of his brothers, not quite all of them will learn, the king's son and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah, the head of the security, or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. Now, a casual reading of the text might lead us to say, you know what? Let's give Adonijah a break. I mean, strictly chronologically, he is the next in the throne. He is the next one to take the throne. You know where Solomon sits? Tenth. He's a long way from the throne. So you might expect that Adonijah is saying, you know, my father David is feeble. We don't want the nation to fall in disrepute. We don't want us to fall apart. It's better if I just take the nation now. I sit on the throne now. I secure the borders and we can move forward. But that's giving him far, far too much credit. Let's pick up in verse 15 and we'll read to 18. So Bathsheba, that's the queen, went to the king, David, in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending the king. In other words, the wife walks in on the human hot water bottle. I would not think that she'd be very happy, yet she is very respectful. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah the king, although you, my Lord the king, do not know it. I'm going to read two more verses. They're not up there for you. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance. He has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, has not been invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all of Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Here we learn that a succession plan has already been in place. Bathsheba walks in and says, hey, you made a promise. You made a promise that my son Solomon will sit on the throne. Now we have to understand that everyone in David's family knows of the promise. But the public does not. But certainly all the leaders do. Certainly Adonijah knows. And you can imagine he's first in line. Solomon is tenth in line. He's seething. And he gets the opportunity to take the throne because how dare dad skip nine brothers, nine sons to put baby Solomon on the throne. But that's not it. If we go to a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 22, 19 and 20, we discover that it was God, not David. God chose Solomon before his birth. God told David that the person who would follow him on the throne would be a son whose name is Solomon, who was not yet born. So Adonijah is not just flipping his nose at his father 
and at the succession plan that he's known all of his life, but he's ignoring the will of God. God said, not David, God said that Solomon would be on the throne. So Adonijah is directly disobeying God's plan, God's will. And remember one of the themes, God blesses those who are obedient. God disciplines those who are not. Well, thankfully, David has enough in his physical tank to overcome the coup. Let's read verses 32 to 37. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, a good priest, Nathan the prophet, the best prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the head of the 30-person secret service. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride, my son, ride on my own mule. Really, David? You can't give him a better ride than that? It's like putting him in a Pinto or a Yugo. Have him ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of the Lord, the King, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. Surprisingly, 3,000 years ago, a ride on the royal mule signified that you were a king. This is kind of like being in England and being on the royal carriage or being in the United States on Air Force One or the presidential limo. In fact, we're going to see a thousand years forward another king, the king, the king of kings, who will ride on the back of an unridden fowl of a donkey, a mule. So this is the sign of kingship. And so David says, hey, let's throw it all together. But let's not do a back alley job like Adonijah. Let's invite those who are supposed to be there. And let's have Benina, the the head of the security, he will lead us in prayer. And let's have Zadok and Nathan anoint him with oil. And let us cry out to God. Let the coronation all be about the glory of God and having God as the center and ask God to lead the nation. That's the way to coronate someone. And so they have this celebration out in the air and and the sound of the celebration begins to travel. And you can imagine what happens. There's the back alley group with Adonijah and they hear this celebration and they say, what's going on? And news comes that the King David has coronated the new King Solomon and suddenly Adonijah doesn't have a friend in the crowd. Everybody's going to slink off. They assume this man is as good as dead. Let me read verses 49 to 53. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose. You bet they did. And each went his own way. 
And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, if, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall on the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. And we say, what on earth is going on? He's running into the tabernacle because remember, the temple has not yet been built. We're going to get a lot of temple study as we proceed through 1 Kings. But the tabernacle is the tent of worship. And in the tabernacle is in an altar. And at the altar are some horns. And he grabs hold of the horns because there's a tradition that if you grab hold of the horns, you get a fair trial. Which is about the last thing Adonijah wants because he's tried a coup but he needs to bone up on scripture a bit because the mention of the horns is in Exodus 21 and it's actually for a person who has committed involuntary manslaughter. This isn't the case. Adonijah, to our knowledge, has not committed involuntary manslaughter. He's tried to commit a coup, but he grabs onto the horns and in graciousness that may not continue by the end of the book, Solomon says, if there is no evil in you going forward, I will let you live. Go now to your house. So what are we to do with this text? How are we to apply it? I've got a few thoughts. The first is this. Godly leaders lead. Godly leaders lead. They're not driven by circumstances. They're not driven by potential results. Godly leaders hear the word of God and they lead according to the word of God, even if that means danger or doom for them. Godly leaders lead. The truth of the matter is, humanly speaking, if you're a betting woman or man, you ought to bet on Adonijah. Solomon is young, he's unproven, he is 10th in the line of succession. David has not made it public that he is to be the next king. He's kept that information private within the family. If you're a betting woman or man, you go with Adonijah, even though he has a corrupt general, an ungodly priest, he's doing a back alley job, He's older, he's experienced, and he's first in line. But godly leaders lead. They lay it on the line because God has spoken. Who's going to be the next Bathsheba who stands out against evil? Who is going to be the next Benaiah, a civil servant who stands against evil? Who's going to be the next Zadok and Nathan, 
church leaders who stand against evil, in spite of the possible repercussions, godly leaders lead. They're not bowed by society. They're not bowed by culture. They're not bowed by pressure. They're not even bowed by what could happen to them. They focus on what God says. And God said, Solomon will be the king. And in spite of all evidence against that, they sided with God because God plus zero is still a majority. Godly leaders lead. The second thought I have comes from Edmund Burke, who said the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to say nothing but Bathsheba. She said something. She alone said something. The whole family knew it was wrong. All the sons are over with Adonijah. The leadership knew it was wrong. Joab, the general, knew it was wrong. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men, or in this case, a good woman, to say nothing. And so again, we ask, who will be the next Bathsheba who stands for what is right? regardless of circumstances, regardless of popularity, regardless of pressure, regardless of culture. But Bathsheba, evil, would have reigned. Third, while it is very clear that David told the leadership and his family who would succeed him, David failed to tell the public who would succeed him. In other words, David left unfinished business unfinished. He didn't make public his last will and testament, which was utterly necessary to do what God called him to do. He left unfinished business unfinished. And we have to ask ourselves, when God calls us home, will we, Leave spiritual unfinished business unfinished. I trust not. Now what might be spiritual unfinished business? It might be a relationship. Maybe a relationship that has gone south and we need to ask forgiveness or we need to offer forgiveness. The onus is always on us. And yet we don't want to. We don't feel like it. It's embarrassing. We have other things to do. Don't leave unfinished business unfinished. Or maybe it's someone who needs to know about Jesus, salvation by faith in Christ alone. Maybe it's a relative or a worker, a co-worker, some neighbor, a relative. And we know we should share the gospel. We've kind of told them we go to church. But we don't really tell them that salvation is only by faith in Christ. And we never know when God will call us home. Don't leave unfinished business unfinished. Maybe it's our personal involvement. Maybe we know we've been called to serve in this way or minister in that way or use our resources in a third way. But we haven't gotten around to it. Life is happening and and we never know When God will call us home, don't leave unfinished business unfinished. David left unfinished business unfinished, and it almost resulted in a coup in his nation. Finally, 
I believe that the author, human and divine, of 1st and 2nd Kings wants us to compare David and Solomon, 20 ungodly kings up north, 26 kings, six godly but still fallen, finite, frail, sinful, down south, a total of 48 monarchs who let us down, who fail, who always think of themselves first rather than others. He wants us to compare those kings to the coming king. That's one of the themes, I believe, that shines through the book. As I thought about that, I thought of an event, you know it well, June 6, 1944. We call it D-Day. It's the invasion of Normandy from the island of the United Kingdom. It's the attempt to get into France and then to march north and east to Berlin to defeat Nazi Germany. Uh, attempt that succeeded. If you know anything about the prime minister at the time, it was Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill listened to nobody but himself. And Winston Churchill decided that he would watch Normandy, the invasion, from a battleship anchored right off the shores of Normandy in the thick of the battle. And the undisputed Allied commander, Eisenhower, said no. No prime minister is getting on a battleship and sitting there in the thick of the battle. <coughs> well, Churchill doesn't listen to four and five-star generals. That is way beneath him. And so he decided he would do it. And so that's when Eisenhower outflanked him. Eisenhower went to George VI, who was the king of England, and told him what Winston Churchill was going to do. The king also knew that he could not dissuade the prime minister. So what the king did was quite clever. He went to Winston and said, if your duty is to stand on the deck and watch the invasion, my duty as king is to stand next to you. But that's not how kings function. Kings are to be protected. Kings are to be served. Kings don't put themselves forth. Everyone else does. And so, of course, Winston Churchill did exactly what George VI knew he would do. He said, all right, I will remain in England with you. But there is a king. But there is a king who puts himself in the throngs of danger. There is a king that came to serve. There is a king who went to the cross, who allowed himself to be brutally slaughtered. There is a king who knew no sin, who took on sin for us, that through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that is King Jesus. And he went to the cross, and he died, and he went into the grave. And after three days, his father said, Long live the king! And the king came out of the grave. And he is now seated at the right hand side of the father. So as you and I study 
essentially 46 kings, plus a little bit of David and a lot of Solomon. We want to remember they are nothing like the king. The contrast is between earthly kings and the eternal king. We serve the eternal king if we know Jesus as personal savior. Serve the king. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for the biblical books of first and second kings. A lot we can learn from these men and women on these pages. Some good, a lot bad. But Father, help us to remember the overriding principles to serve the king, your king. Or excuse me, your son, our king. Help us to serve him fully and receive the blessing rather than the discipline. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.